0: Good morning. Genesis 37 is our passage. We've, we've been working through a sermon series that I've entitled it, The Gospel According to Abraham. So we looked at Abraham, a little bit of Isaac, a fair bit of Jacob. Here we are, the Joseph story. I have, um, well, it, you know, it kind of fits the whole theme of the service today. Genesis 37, verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, so to speak, with... He was there with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Joseph, or I mean Jacob, who's now named Israel... Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said, Behold me, which is kind of a a phrase. Here I am, I'm I'm ready to do your bidding. Here I am. So so Jacob said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with their flock, and bring me word. Verse 18. The brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do do not lay a hand on him. Reuben said this, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was probably, I don't know, 20 feet deep, empty cistern. The pit, the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. <laughs> And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. It gets a little murky here Ishmaelites, Midianites, uh, who is it? Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And so they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, and he saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And Jacob identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and he put Put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. Sheesh. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the grave, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. What we're going to do here to start out the sermon is we're going to do a little if-then, if, 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 then, kind of chain of causation, if-then. If Joseph hadn't been so prideful of heart. So part of the story that I cut out because it's a long reading is he has two dreams, and in these dreams, both of them, he... Effectively, the message of the dream is that his brothers are going to bow down to him and, and serve him as their Lord. That's interesting. I mean, living as we do now, here and now, kind of on the other side of Freudian psychology, we know something about the way that dreams work. We know that dreams sometimes, not always, but sometimes dreams are tapping into our subconsciousness. You know, the subconscious secretly harbored desires of our hearts, those things will on occasions get manifested in our dreams. Uh, Could that be happening here? Joseph immediately, as soon as he has these dreams, he he immediately, he's so quick to announce the dreams to his brothers, he says, "Ah, come here guys, listen, you'll never guess what I dreamt about last night. It sounds like he has a highly inflated view of self-importance. You couple that with the fact that at the beginning of the story he, he tattles on his other brothers, gives a bad report of them. It sounds like he has. If if J, if Joseph hadn't been so prideful, if Jacob hadn't been a terrible father, I mean, there's a story of parental favoritism, or the theme rather, is is woven throughout this. How he. Loves Joseph more than all of the the other sons. Nobody's exactly sure what to make of this coat. Joseph's technicolor dream coat is what, you know, we've heard that, you might have heard that said before. This coat of many colors. What is it? Is it bright and is it the colors of the rainbow? Uh, What we know is that it was a richly ornamented coat, and we know that it's a rich present whatever it looks like, it was a coat of a considerable value. And it was this that Jacob bestowed on. He, he singles Joseph out. He doesn't provide this to the other, other brothers, but this he singles Joseph out. Let me give you this, this rich present. And then he's entirely oblivious to all of the bitterness and dissension that his favoritism has, has created in the family dynamic. So if Joseph... Wasn't stricken with pride, if Jacob wasn't such a clueless father, if Jacob didn't come up with a, what turns out to be a terrible idea, sending Joseph off to find out the state of his brothers as they're shepherding the flocks. Not a good idea, not his finest moment. If Jacob hadn't sent Joseph, the other part of the story that I truncated was he shows up in this place called Shechem which is where they were supposed to be pasturing the flock. And nobody's there. Nobody. They've already moved on. Joseph has absolutely no idea where my brothers have gone. Eh, Until this nameless stranger walks up to him and says, Oh, yeah, I saw them a a couple of days ago. And I just happened to overhear that they were going to take their flocks to a, a much further and remote location, to Dothan, I just I just happened to see them. They just happened to leave. I just happened to overhear. Joseph just happened to meet him. You, you have this long string of coincidences that if these hadn't occurred, then Joseph is traveling to meet them. And the brothers look out on the horizon and they see a boy approaching them in the distance. They don't have binoculars. Who is what who is who's that? That's all the way out here in, in Dothan coming to meet us. It looks like somebody wearing a multicolored coat. You say, how in the world, Joseph, were you so dumb as to go on this search searching uh, odyssey wearing the multicolored coat? But that's exactly what he does. How can he be so insanely foolish? If Joseph hadn't been so terribly foolish If his brothers had not been so, so brutal, you look at the brutality, the callousness. You know, when I was reading it, I purposely highlighted the fact that they've thrown him into a 20-foot pit, and what do they do after that? They sit down and eat lunch. They strip their brother naked, and they throw him into a pit, and they, uh, they, they sit down in and, and stone-cold act, actions. Their brother is pleading for his life at the bottom of the pit. Please have mercy upon my life. And they're, they're like past the salami. <laughs> no, they're just eating. They don't care. So if Reuben doesn't come up with the idea to spare his life, then if Judah doesn't come up with the idea to sell his life, if there there hadn't been this unjust social system obviously we we have here slave trading at its at its worst uh, there was an entire social social mechanism through which he would be passed on to the ishmaelites or passed on to the midianites it's kind of hard to tell but he would be sold and if that if they didn't happen to come by and if he didn't happen to if they didn't happen to pay for him and if they weren't happening to go down to Egypt. You see, okay, I belabored the point, I know. <laughs> but you, this, this is a very long train of causation. If, 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 if this didn't happen, if that didn't happen, then, then what? Then everybody dies. Everybody dies. 20 years later, A historic famine sweeps through the land And the only reason that people live Is because some guy has been recently promoted To a post in Pharaoh's cabinet And this high governmental official Comes up with an idea That right at the very beginning Of of this historic famine That they will hoard uh, Large amounts of grain Large granaries They institute this massive grain storage program and it's these stores of grain which they're used as a full-scale famine relief project. Tens of thousands of people are saved as a result of, of this. Hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are saved including these brothers and including that father. What's so amazing about the Joseph story is that in all of it, God is nowhere to be found. Go ahead, flip through all. There's way more in the Bible about Joseph than there is in Abra- about Abraham. And yet, you're hard-pressed to find the name of Yahweh on hardly any one of those pages. God is nowhere to be found. He's, he's gone offline. Now, on the surface of the story, God seems to be completely absent. And what becomes clear in the very end is that he has been managing the events down to the minutest details. Even the events of all of their sins, uh, even the unjust social systems, even, a lot of times we will try to assign causation in terms of percentages. Always a little dangerous to to do that, but I've thought of this before. Sometimes we say that it was 50% God's doing and 50% human agency. You know, it's free... Individuals who are responsible for their moral decisions, 50-50. Or sometimes, you know, we may tip the scales in one direction or another. It's 80-20 or it's 20-80. But the Bible depicts history as 100% God's direction and 100% human beings choosing and, and responsible for their behavior. God has planned every bit of this, including the fact that Joseph is the official in Pharaoh's court, and by at the very end of the story, it's the most famous passage, and, and um, all of it, Genesis 50, This uh, Joseph summons his brothers to him, and he says, do not be afraid, for what you intended for evil, God has meant for good, to accomplish what is now being done, that is, the saving of many lives. So everybody dies. If it's astounding that if even one of these sins, one of these acts of evil, don't take place, or if even one of these coincidences don't occur, then then what? Then we just lose count of all of the all of it. Then, but God has worked it all in the end for the salvation of many people. And that is how you ought to think about the sufferings of your own life. Point number one. Point number one. Think about these things. You no, know, I I've told you before, I think I've lived a pretty charmed life. Uh, a few of us have lived a charmed life, but uh, a, a number of us in this church in this room right now or who will be in this room in the second service have have suffered truly evil things there are are women in our church who have been raped there are people in our church who have been molested there are people in our church who have had um, their father or their mother abandon them there are people who have been beaten and stolen from and um and, and you, if that is you, then you read through the Joseph story and you relate to him on a, a deep emotional level. Um, evil has, has happened to me. And Joseph is not afraid to call it what it is. It is evil. And then on the other hand, some of us, many of us associate quite well with the brothers in the story. Because we are... We have harmed and done evil. to We've harmed others badly. There are people in our church who have who have had abortions. There are people in our church who have cheated on their spouses. There are people in our church who ha- have um, have walked out on their kids. There are people who have d- who have just done things that have made a, a, a total mess of their lives. There are people who have gotten gotten pregnant out of wedlock or gotten someone pregnant out of wedlock I've gotten addicted to substances um, and so we've been we've done the evil we've experienced the evil we've done the evil and we have come from evil social environments we some of us have families of origin they're every bit as screwed up as jacob's home and uh, the different elements of uh, the sibling rivalry we've had clueless parents profoundly shaped us, um, parents who turned a blind eye towards, towards evil and dysfunction that's taking place in, in our, in our here the, here's the thing, you can't fix that. Like, none of this stuff can be fixed. If you have been sold into slavery, thrown into a pit, or if you were the one who was doing the selling, there's no going back. There's, you can't take that stuff back. It can't be undone. You'll live with it for the rest of your life. And what's beautiful about this story is how God takes all of it to bring about salvation. All the terribleness. (laughs) It just took 20 years. Like, do you have the patience to wait 20 years? And I guarantee you, it got a whole lot worse before it got better. <laughs> Do you have the patience to en- endure the worst? That's like the two caveats. It'll take a long time. It'll probably get worse before it gets better. Maybe the third caveat is you're not going to to really sense the goodness of God's pl- purposes and plans when you're in the middle of the story. Joseph, there's naked, screaming for his life at the bottom of the pit. He's not saying, "Oh, God is working this for good. Salvation." <laughs> Right? He's... But that's the point that Paul makes. Paul makes that point, Romans 8, doesn't he? That no matter how bad things get, no matter how much they are to blame, no matter how much you are to blame, no matter, <laughs> rest assured, that God will work it for his people's good. For those who love him, for those who, are, are, who love him, he will work all things for his people's good. Even the heinous even the, the stupid, even the random. And through it all, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from his love. I mean, I, I, am, I am hesitant to even uh, speak that message to you because when I hear it, it sounds so Pollyanna-esque. Right? It's so pietistic, pie-in-the-sky, <laughs> Saying that to a suffering person, a deeply suffering person, that nothing can separate us from his love. But Paul, at the end of Romans 8, he just, he bursts at the seams. He, he bursts the, 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 um, the confines of human language. He says, nothing, nothing, not, not, nothing, no suffering, no pain, no angels, no demons, no, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so my, what I would ask you to do is just please resist the temptation to mistrust him. At, at any given time, we are only going to see the tiniest fraction of the good that he is up to. And you have to resist the temptation to think that your limited vantage point is an accurate reflection of God's reality. Don't. Give in to mistrusting him. Don't let yourself become bitter against what he has allowed, even the evil that he has allowed, even the stupidity of your own life that he has allowed because he has a long history of taking everything and using it for salvation. That's point number one. Point number two and I told you last week, Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is a gem. Um, it, it, probably the best treatment of it that I've come across. In it, he says, he says that, basically says that uh, it's the loss of hope that makes suffering unbearable. It's the loss of hope. Because we're hope-shaped creatures, the way we live right now is pretty much controlled by what we believe about our future, what, what kind of hope we are operating off. So he says this. He says, I was reading a story some, some years ago about two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon. Or maybe it was a prisoner of war camp. Just before they went into prison, one man discovered that his wife and child were dead. The other man learned that his wife and child were alive and waiting for him. Both men suffered identical conditions in the prison. Both of them uh, were there for a couple of years. Uh, but but after a couple of years, the, the, the one man, the former man, uh, he curled up in a ball and he basically died. The other man, he, he stood upright and he endured and he stayed strong and he walked out free Ten years later, again they had experienced the identical, the identical conditions in prison, but they had their mindset on completely different futures and I think that is why uh, uh, suffering is so hard for secular people because imagine this type of a future imagine this that this life is all there is all the world the secular Western mindset is that all that there all that exists is is the, this world this life. And the the goal of life then in the Western secular view of things is to live in whatever way that makes you the happiest. It's the the freedom to be able to pursue and to uh, actualize your own greatest personal happiness. Well, what happens when suffering comes uh, in between you and that? It's devastating. You've got to do everything in your power to... Negate the negative emotions that are associated with it or or blast out the roadblock that change the conditions so that you 're not suffering in the same way you 've got to do that as fast as possible because this is it, and you don 't have long and then you turn into fertilizer and that is one way to imagine your future. There is another way to imagine your future, and that is by imagining that our Momentary and light afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's another way. I'm, that would be imagining it in terms of 2 Corinthians 4.17. Uh, an eternal weight of glory? What, what is that? So Keller asked this question. Uh, thought experiment. What if I told you that tomorrow, for one day, There would be a special camera that was going to put everything you said, everything you did, everything you thought, even, on television, and that it would be beamed around the world, and probably a billion people would would see it. Uh, Would that make any difference in how you lived tomorrow? (laughs) Well, it'd be a little frightening. No, that would bestow enormous meaning and significance on even the most fleeting thoughts and minor actions. Yes, it would be frightening, of course, because uh, you, would be, you would need to be on your best behavior, but it would also be thrilling. You might even say that there are there are a couple of things I've always wanted to tell the world, <laughs> and now I can. It would make an enormous difference. It, w- it would make the day in- incredibly meaningful. A- assuming that Christianity is true, That is already happening. You already live on camera, so to speak. There's a spiritual world. There are, I dare say, a billion seraphim and cherubim and saints, angels, even demons who are watching us, who who, who are filming us, so to speak, and who are who are watching how you endure and trust in Jesus Christ through your trials. Um, they are they are interested, they marvel actually, to see how you are able to forgive people who have done this, this kind of level of evil and injustice uh, and perpetrated against you. And you're doing that every day in front of billions of, of spiritual beings. I just wonder if you could imagine... Um, what they're going to say when they welcome you on the day of the resurrection and when they say, I watched you. Imagine, we witnessed your faithfulness and your patient endurance in Christ. Imagine the welcome that that will take place because that's the hope. Um, And somehow I think that is related to the eternal weight of of glory. I mean, surely when the angels watch us go through hell and back, trusting in Jesus Christ, like that increases the the amount of them wanting to praise the Holy Spirit, who is the one who empowers us to do that. Surely it, it surely it increases God's glory, and you got to think that somehow it's storing up for us an eternal weight, an eternal weight of glory. So think about these things, think about this hope, and now listen to me as I read to you a Joseph story. So last week in the sermon, I I took a biographical sketch out of this, and I read you what I said was a Jacob story. This week, I'm going to read you a Joseph story. And I promise not to read any stories next week, but if you're tired of biographi- long bi- biographical sketches. But here we go. It's Georgiana's story. She, said, she says, my, my life with my husband, Ted, and my daughters had been so happy and so blissful, so much so that if God had said to me that I'm going to allow a painful crisis in your family and all of you will suffer, I think I would have calmly replied, okay, because together we can handle anything. Not a good way to start your story. Right? No, we can handle anything. Well, on May 13, 2011, anything began to come. Our youngest daughter, Jane, had an accident. She tipped backward in her seat and fell, hitting her head on the hardwood, hardwood floor. I assessed her immediately. I am an infant and pediatric nurse practitioner. I assessed her. She showed no signs of injury. My sister, who is also a nurse practitioner, agreed she she appears healthy. We took Jane to her scheduled uh, pediatric visit a couple days later, and I told the doctor what had happened. He thought it would be prudent to obtain a skull x-ray. We took Jane to the children's hospital, and a CT scan confirmed that there were no other complications. I I feel terrible about what happened. I really did, but... We were comforted and assured by the medical staff. She's all right. We praised God all the way home for protecting Jane from uh, from more severe injuries. A week later, I was home alone with my daughters, Ann and Paige and Jane, and suddenly there was a knock at the door, police detectives and the child protective services at our house. Who have come to investigate A report of severe child abuse The report of severe child abuse Came from a new doctor at the hospital Who had who had simply viewed the x-ray And made the report to CPS Based on nothing more than Reviewing the x-ray Because Jane was under uh, one year uh, of age The report was then automatically classified As a criminal case So all three of our daughters were removed from our custody. Even though there was no evidence of abuse, past or present, in any of our children, and every medical professional who examined Jane and spoke with our family ruled out the possibility of, of abuse. In spite of the truth, our family was not reunited for another nine months. Ted and I were not allowed to live in the same house as our girls. We had to move out, and we were allowed only supervised visitation. I will never forget the first night away from our daughters. How I was raging, crying out to God, screaming in agony. Then something powerful happened. A calmness and warmth spread through me. I was suddenly aware that Jesus was right there holding me, raging with me at the injustice, weeping with me. I had never felt more protected in all my life. I, I certainly didn 't remain one hundred percent trusting or peaceful over the following nine months every every single second felt like evil. Uh, our children were suffering evil I was I was being personally and professionally attacked on many levels i i wasn 't allowed to return to work since I worked with children, and so we were r- racking up enormous legal bills, associated medical bills, counseling bills all of that so what happened to the deep, peaceful awareness of Jesus' presence and protection? I can honestly say that it was normally with me, grounding me, giving me strength to get through another day, despite each day's disappointments and the countless court meetings, the petitions, the hearings, the CPS visits, the police procedures, the legal proceedings, the rumors, the expert opinions, the off-the-record tips, the massive amounts of paperwork—you just can imagine a mom. I mean, just pulling her hair out. And yet, I tell you the truth: I slept soundly, and each morning I thanked God for for recharging me. Most of the time, most of the time, I. Accepted the courage. Jesus was able to handle these daily challenges. Uh, other times I crumbled into a, just a, a ball of mess. But I, I did learn that he didn't mind how strong or weak I was on any given day. Because he was, he was the same on every day. Fast forward, we finally make it to the juvenile court trial. Although it was technically a criminal investigation, since the police never uncovered any evidence against us, we were never charged crimi- criminally, so it was done in, in juvenile court. The judge, hearing the case, was, res- was respected as a fair and objective judge. The CPS attorney, who was prosecuting the case, had the, the opposite reputation. Uh, while I was under, on the stand, under cross-examination, I felt... I felt so many things. Um, I felt tricked, felt betrayed, hurt, angry, annoyed, defeated, helpless, and yet the whole time I could feel Jesus (laughs) with me, fighting for me. After the third day of the trial, once Ted and I were alone, I I prayed, thank you, God, for the privilege of the suffering, for being with us in it, and for shining through us during it the fourth day of the trial comes the judge made a declaration that astonished everyone he dismissed the entire case as unfounded without even hearing our our defense and i just whispered thank you thank you thank you thank you over and over again our attorney said this isn't my victory or your victory this is god's victory and yet it wasn't over. The the battle wounds, we still needed tending. Initially, we were so relieved and overjoyed by the freedom that we we didn't anticipate the emotional task ahead. But the reunification of our family and our daughters was brutal. And Ted and I were so thin that we faced PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. February 2013 marked the one-year anniversary of our trial. I would say that the most po- powerful facilitation to our recovery has been, has been forgiveness. As you know, injustice is very difficult to forgive. Personally, it would have been impossible for me to forgive them without Jesus. So my family attempted, we tried to contact the children's hospital to, who started the whole ordeal... Finally, the chief of staff agreed to meet with, the, uh, with us and with the physician who reported us. Our intention was to have a collegial discussion about the events in an effort to prevent similar harm to other families. So in that meeting, I recounted every appalling detail as I spoke. And I felt confident and calm and not angry and bitter. When I finished, the chief of staff said... He apologized, sort of. Mistakes were made. I'm very sorry for blah, blah, blah. Um, And then the physician who made the misdiagnosis of the child abuse echoed the same blah, blah, blah apology. And when we were leaving the office, I turned to the doctor who reported us, and I hugged him. I didn't feel like showing love to to that person, to her but that was the most powerful healing and reconciliation I have ever experienced. It was like God changed me in that moment more than he had changed me through the entire tribulations. Like he miraculously changed my perspective on everything. Even my, he changed my perspective on me. I suddenly saw me in this flawed woman who I was hugging. I saw how many Mistakes have I made in my life? How many people have I hurt? Intentionally or unintentionally? How many times have I allowed pride to prevent me from doing the right thing? And how was I, after all, different from my accuser? Now, I believe our story does have a happy ending. I I praise God that he's still writing it. <laughs> still writing the chapters of my life. My family and I are humbly grateful for the suffering we've endured. Without it, we would be living the comfortable American old life as, as of before. Instead, we are courageously living by the grace of God, new ones. I read that, that's a, I mean, Keller in the book, he doesn't say it's a Joseph story. I read that, that's a Joseph story. I mean, you get to the end of Joseph's story and this prideful punk has been deeply humbled His perspective on himself has definitely been changed, and he's able to forgive his brothers. So, the reason I believe that God will work all things together for good for those who love him, and God, that you are participating in a hope-filled story, the reason I believe this is, Yes, it's partially because I've heard lots of Christian testimonies like this, like Georgiana's, and it's partially because there is a story like this in the Bible with Joseph. But it's ultimately because because Jesus Christ is the greater Joseph. Like this has this has Jesus connections all over it, and this is what all of human history was building to. It was building to a son. Who left his home, his father's home, to go out in search of his brothers? A son who, when his brothers saw him, hated his guts. A son who the brothers ended up selling him off to for thirty pieces of silver. A son when they when they had him in their clutches, they stripped him naked and they threw him into the sheol, the grave, the pit. And what they meant for evil, God meant for good, for the salvation of, of many people. What strikes me is that if, if any one of the sins in Jesus' day had not been committed, or if any one of the coincidences in Jesus, in those last moments of his life, if those didn't happen, then what happens? Then everybody dies. But God would use it all. In fact, God basically orchestrated all of human history so that he would use it all. His brothers, the betrayal, the vicious crime, uh, use it all. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And just like in Joseph's story, where Joseph, after uh, many years, is exalted to the right hand of the pharaoh... Jesus Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father and through him is promised the forgiveness of sins, uh, the resurrection uh, of the body and the life of the world hereafter. Amen.